Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia and on the community radio network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology, Sydney, and my producer today is Anthony Dockrell. Today's show is about two things. The first is a remarkable, slightly scary, and very entertaining and factual story of murder, corruption, greed, fraud, incompetence, and pure avarice. And the second is the journalist who brought this story and many others like it to life. Welcome to the show, Kate McClymont. Investigative journalist, extraordinaire of the Sydney Morning Herald, now part of the Nine Entertainment Group. Hello, Kate. <laughs> oh, did you have to say the last bit? <laughs> oh, no, no. In fact, it's actually fine um, being part of um, the Nine Entertainment Group. It's just the title. Nine Entertainment Group does sound I know, a bit… I um, especially when you work for the Sydney Morning Herald. It sounds yeah. a bit sort of… Oh, yeah, I, I work yes. for NEG. Oh, no, yes. please. Yeah, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, anyway, it's it's factual. It's a fact. Yes. It is a fact. Um, look, congratulations on the book, Dead Man Walking, the story uh, of the life and death of Michael McGurk. Brilliant job. Oh, thank you, Peter. No, it was wonderful. Um, written, I should add, with, the, with important inputs from uh, your former colleague, Amanda Carson. I finished it yesterday, uh, just in time for launch, and uh, yes, as I say, my, my, what a yarn. What can't you say about McGurk, right? <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. The list just goes on and on. He's a spiv, he's a standover man, he's a scam artist, he's a thief, he's a con man, and, and also, he's a source, right? He's a journalistic source, uh, and his nemesis... But uh, also his one-time uh, business partner associate is one multi-millionaire property developer, Ron Medic. Uh, Medic is, of course, doing time in jail for his role in McGurk's murder. Um, and all this came to pass a decade or so ago in Sydney. Take us back to September 29, 2009, in the very lovely middle-class suburb of Cremorne on Sydney's Lower North Shore. Tell us about that night. Well, look, that night was, um, I, I guess, for McGurk, like many others. So that afternoon, he'd met a group of spivs discussing a mortgage fraud. Um, then he'd driven home and he'd texted his wife to say, did she want anything? And so he picked up his nine-year-old son. They got some takeaway chicken and chips from the local shops he pulls up outside his Cremorne house in his uh, sleek Mercedes car and as he's opening the car and he's reaching in to get the, the takeaway food, he's shot behind his right ear and his son, who is nine, basically it's so quick, his son sees nothing and the next thing you know, you know, McGurk is lying Yes. On the ground, you know, his life ended by a uh, cascade of uh, deep fried chips. Well, yes, beautifully written. I mean, one of the great things about this book, of course, is that it's so well written and you kind of feel like you're there. I felt those chips, you know, kind of <laughs> cascading across the… Uh, but the, the, the other funny thing about that night, Peter, was that you might remember 
you were the editor that That's night. Right. So I think I was at home when you rang me mm. to say that guy that you've been writing about, Michael McGurk, um, we've just got a tip that he's been murdered. And I felt absolutely physically sick because 10 days earlier he had told me that not only was there a contract out on him, he told me that Ron Medich was the person who had taken out the contract and that he would probably be killed by Ron Medich's right-hand man, Fortunato, otherwise known as Lucky Gatellari. <laughs> a walking misnomer if there ever was. <laughs> Unfortunato. Unfortunato. <laughs> um, yes, no, it was a crazy night. And uh, just uh, sort of for the record, yes, that happened. Uh, you called, I called you, I think. And and then I also called um, the closest Herald journalist to the scene of the crime, one Peter Fitzsimons. Who uh, who promptly filed? Why well, he wandered down there and walked up the hill and um, got himself into the action? I think it's the first and only news story he's ever written. But yes, yeah, so Fitzy was one of the first on the scene, and um, you know, instead of flashing you know a badge saying press, he flashed his driver's license to show that he was a resident of the area. <laughs> so he was able to get past the police. Right. Um, barricades and interview the neighbours about various um, yeah, no, I, going on. I, I remember night. it well. I think we got him and he just talked down the phone at someone on the news desk and we just took down as many words as we could. It was a great night. It was a sensational night. Tell us about the 10 days earlier though. So you are having kind of conversations with McGurk. Well, yeah, just, just going back a yeah. step further, how yeah. it actually came about yeah. was that um, – We'd, we, as in um, Van der Colleague, who were, Van der Colleague, Van der Carson, who was working on the business de- desk at the time, we had both separately been told about this extraordinary court case that was playing out in the New South Wales Supreme Court. And what it was was a lawsuit between Ron Medich and the very famous Tilly family. Mm. And as it transpired, Adam Tilly had bought Ron Medich's redundant house in Wolseley Road, but not having had the money to pay for it, he'd borrowed the money from Ron Medich. So Ron mm. Medich sells his house and also gives the money to yes, the it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing. It is a curious it's thing. It's a very curious thing. So Just remind listeners who the Tillys are. I mean, the, the Tillys are a very well-known eastern suburbs family and um, – the family patriarch, Barry Tilly, Tilly, was a very close confidant to Kerry Packer, right. as was his son, Ben Tilly. And now Ben Tilly is the glad hand uh, and uh, basically the, I don't know, the paid companion of one James Packer. It's so a, It's a very, uh, yes, we'll get to all that. Oh, yes. This really so, is oh. a great insight into... Uh, Sydney's sort of well, it's not only the underbelly. I mean, that's what makes this such a great read. Of course, it's it's not, all the connection. It's the connection. Anyway, yeah. so, anyway, so go on. So basically, there's Ron Medich suing the Tillies, mm. but as part of the mix was Michael McGurk, who had been charged with firebombing the very same house at the centre of the dispute. So we write this story about the seventeen million dollar lawsuit, the firebombing. Point Piper. And of mm. course, um, Wolseley Road 
is not just the most expensive strip of real estate in Australia. It's the 10th most expensive street in the entire nation. In, sorry, in, in the, the entire world. world. In the world, that's so right. So what's not to like about a story <laughs> about that? No, there's so, absolutely nothing not to like. Yeah. as we're doing the story, we can't get on to Michael McGurk because one thing you've got to do is put questions mm. to various people. What we didn't know at the time was that he was down at the snow where Ron Medich had tried to get lucky to organise <laughs> killers to kill him while he was slopeside, but they hadn't got organised enough. <laughs> so he comes back from the snow and, um, you know, he reads our story and obviously he's not happy. So he arranges to have lunch. So I suggest we go to a restaurant called Machiavelli. I thought that might tickle Great. his fancy, but no, he no. wanted to go to uh, another restaurant in the Ivy Complex where it turned out he was there rather a lot taking cocaine and um, chatting to scantily clad lasses. But anyway, so during the lunch, he told the most extraordinary stories of corruption, mayhem, wrongdoing, of course failing to note his own role in many of these. But it's one of those things, having dealt with shysters, spids, spivs and, you know, various con men over the years – I could tell he was trying to use me. And what he was trying to do was to deflect attention away from himself and, of course, to get me to focus on his nemesis, Ron Medich. So it was no – yeah, I could tell that I was uh, being used here. But you were – just so – yes, it's an interesting thing, so isn't it, because you spent virtually your whole career having those sorts of conversations. Yes. Is there a – a tip for beginners in that sort of situation? Because, you, you know, you have the presence of mind to know you're being used. How do you play it from there? What's your what's the modus? Look, I think one thing that you always need to find out when you're doing a story is what is the, per- what is the person's motive that's, you know, who's telling you the information. Mm. Because sometimes um, that can colour what they're telling you. Like if they're just out for revenge – it's all well and good and it doesn't stop you from doing the story. But in the back of your mind, you are saying to yourself, there's possibly two sides mm. to this story. If someone is just a witness to an event that is not emotionally involving them, they're likely to be more reliable. So it's just common sense to mm. try to weigh these things up in your mind when you're talking to somebody. I mean, you don't have to let on to them that you're deeply suspicious no, you of haven't. what they're telling you. <laughs> Was that the first time you'd met yes. Uh, um, ago? Yes. And he hadn't come across your radar until then? I mean, he, he had, wasn't because he he's done some remarkable things. Look, and I think after well, as we were preparing to do the story, mm. going back through the clippings file, he was a man who was uh, you know had attempted to sue the Sultan of Brunei over a yes. miniature Koran. It's you know like he had a colourful past, but no, he had he was not in the forefront of my mind. Mm. Do you reckon? So you've seen, you've interviewed and reported on a lot of scumbags. On a scale of one to ten, where would he rate? Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's extraordinary. Like meeting him, he that saying a spiv in a shiny suit. He was a spiv in an Amani suit. Right. He was well dressed. He was well presented. He lived in you know a beautiful house in you know leafy. Cremorne, 
Um, his kids went to the local Catholic school and his son was at Riverview. He had all the trappings of a successful businessman. Mm. But in fact, it was like just about everything else in his life, a facade. So, um, Kate, McGurk's life sort of jumps off the page, you know, uh, and down your throat, really, with all the subtleties of <laughs> Glasgow Kiss, the city from which he comes. I mean, he gets off the boat in, in Sydney or in Australia, starts ripping off his first employee, right? Oh, his first... Um, his first job is as a um, a jaguar salesman up on the northern suburbs, and he promises uh, prospective buyers that for the same amount of money to seal the deal, he'll throw in you know free aircon or free sunroof, and of course. No such thing ever materialises. So he loses that job. Then he gets a job at um, ECC Lighting. And I can remember one of the people at ECC Lighting um, had a um, a sticker or a a notice in his office, which was, and it was about McGurk, and it was rule number one, don't believe a word he says. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. (laughs) And the interesting thing was, was that, the people that he worked with just saw instantly that he was a, a charlatan and a liar. But to the bosses, he just presented a completely different picture as, you know, a super salesman, smooth. And when he got the keys to the warehouse, the warehouse supervisor quit because he knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, when they did a stock take, there was millions and millions of dollars worth of um, product gone. (laughs) But the other thing that um, was remarkable about this, which came to be a pattern of his life, he managed to talk his um, employers into giving him a $50,000 loan. This is the electricity This is the, ele- yeah. this is the, the lighting the company. Lighting company. Yeah, yeah. And so when they asked for it back, he took them to court <laughs> saying that it was in fact a bonus and not just a bonus, he had been promised 90000 <laughs> not 50000 So he wanted the other forty. Yes, yeah, so he sued and... Um, he lost, and then he tried another lawsuit. But this was a practice he was to pursue for the rest of his life, which was to um, bite the hand mm. that fed him and then sue them to mm. boot. And then never pay the lawyers who represented Correct. him. Correct. Yes. yes. Never pay the lawyers. Never pay the lawyers. No. It's remarkable. No. I mean, this is a sort of... Um, uh, well, it's a travel log of crime, money, and power and avarice, as we mentioned earlier. But it's also just—it's uh, a bit of a morality tale, isn't it? Because do these people? Well, there's no morality in there this is, tale. No. Is there any morality in this tale at all? Is there's no one with any moral redemption no, in the story? And really, the the only ones that um, agree to talk to the police or agree to do something, they only do it to save themselves. They Mm. don't do it to serve justice per se. (laughs) They do it to serve themselves. So you're talking about the the, the two teenage assassins. Well, also Lucky Gavilari. Yes. Yes. And, And the other tale is that when you have money, money can buy justice. Mm. And the people in this story who didn't have money were, luckily for the police, forced to do deals to give other people up, but not Ron Medich. All those millions kept him out of jail for, for nine years 
after the murder happened. And now he's got sentenced for 39 years now, isn't he? Yes. So he really got a massively long stretch now. Yes, he got um, a maximum of 39 and a minimum of 29, but right. considering he's now 71, it's effectively a life sentence. Mm. Yeah, whereas the two uh, mentioned before, the assassins, Christopher Estefan, yeah, and... Hassan Safetli, um, who I come across as really basically th- thick as, really. Oh, aren't thick they? As, yes. They are, thick, thick. They are the dunderheads, the but, assassins from hell, but, uh, central casting. It's one of those things, too, that um, the morning after the murder and the weeks that ensued when no one was arrested, everyone was saying, oh, this is a professional hit. You know, the assassins have left the country. When... The reality was anything but. For instance, just going to the night of the murder. So we've got Hassam Safetli, who was 45 at the time, and up until a couple of months beforehand, he'd been the general manager of um, a Pimble accountancy firm, but he had been fired for decking one of the partners. But his um, the other man with him there on the night was a 19-year-old friend of his nephew. His name was um, Christopher Estefan. So on the night of the murder, this was about the third time they'd been to the murder scene, and in fact, a month earlier, no less than three carloads of would-be assassins had gathered outside the McGurk house. I mean, I, I'm like, oh. So, <laughs> it's beyond belief, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's incredible. Anyway, yeah. so on the night of the murder, um, they're both, um, you know, Chris Estefan and Hassam Safetli are sitting there. They're nervous. Mm. They get there in the you know early afternoon. So um, Hassam Safetli dispatches the kid, as he became known, down to the local bottle shop to buy a bottle of bourbon to calm their nerves. So, of course, he gets down to the bottle shop and they say, you're too young. <laughs> you know, where's your ID? So, of course, he can't show his ID. So he has to go back up the hill, back to Cranbrook, Avenue where they were lying in wait. And then Hassam Safetli had to go down to the bottle shop. So the two of them are placed at the scene of the crime on the murder. I mean, on the night of the murder. So then after the murder occurs, after McGurk is shot, um, uh, Chris Estefan, who's lost his license, he's driving the getaway car. They almost um, prang the car at the first roundabout. That's Boffer Street. Then they appear um, on CCTV footage going along Military Road. Then they don't have an e-tag <laughs> on their ute, so they're photographed going across the Harbour Tunnel. And then when they get home, I think Safetli had seen too many movies because he, you know, burns his clothes and then forgets that some of the murder money is still in the back pocket. So then he burns his fingers. <laughs> trying to retrieve, you know, the the, the, the burning cash again, and then so he drinks um, he drinks bourbon all night, and then the next morning he summons his girlfriend to come to um, Eldersley, which is on the the southwestern outskirts of Sydney. It's quite a you know it's forty kilometres or so, maybe yeah. even further okay. from Sydney CBD. So he pays hundreds of dollars for his girlfriend to get a. Taxi, and then he's got the morning newspapers. He's got our newspaper there in front of him with McGurk <laughs> lying there, you know, under a um, you know a police um, oh, you know a tent. Ex- a tent. Yeah. Um, and he says, 
I did this pointing to. <laughs> so, and it's one of those things that at that instance, she knew that he'd done it, but she knew that he knew that she knew. Right. So from then on, her this life, is, this, this is, is the Crystal. girlfriend, this is Crystal Weir. Yeah, yeah. From then on, her life is actually Ooh. in danger because she knew that he had done it. And at one stage, um, he tried to organise people to have her killed and also to have the kid killed. So, I mean, they're all, they're always turning on each other to save themselves. But, it's not, but the other great part of this book, as I mentioned earlier, is that it's not only, as it were, scumbags killing scumbags. There are uh, There's a rich list of some very, you know, seemingly very respectable uh, people in this book, uh, politicians and business people and, and just plain old rich folk. Um, I mean, to mention a few, there's uh, Graham Richardson gets a mention, there's Neville Rand, there's Eddie O'Bead and his son Moses, a personal favourite of yours, I know, <laughs> um, uh, the former minister Ian MacDonald, uh, and that's just the Labour politicians. So I, can I ask a rather naive question? Can I ask, why are there so many politicians featured in this book, which is about a SPIV and a property developer? Oh, you, you've just answered the question yourself. <laughs> well, and in fact, it was um, it was fascinating that just before he was killed, we had been alerted to the fact that he'd made a tape recording mm. of Ron Medich and he was trying to blackmail Medich saying, unless you pay me $8 million, I am going to release this tape recording. So um, in the wake of his death... It was splashed across the front pages of our paper and other papers. Well. You know, was was this tape going to bring down the government as he claimed? And within a, a week of the murder, there was a parliamentary inquiry because at the time, Ron and Roy Medich were trying to have their land rezoned out at Badgerys Creek. Um, and to affect this, they had hired former Labor power broker Graham Richardson to do their spruiking. And in fact, as coincidences would have it, the day before the murder, uh, Graham Richardson, the head of planning New South Wales, Sam Haddad, and Roy Medich had had a meeting about this very land. Hmm. And as a result of the murder, uh, Nathan Rees, the then Premier, introduced the laws that are now current in this state whereby property developers cannot donate to New South Wales political parties because at the very time when they were, the Medicis that is, were lobbying to get these redezonings through, they were also very, very handsome uh, donors to the Labor Party. So there was a general disquiet at the time that um, – the proximity of donations and favours that might come mm. as a result of that was, you know, looked at in Parliament. And, you know, it's interesting, like fast forward. So the murder happened in 2009. And then um, two years ago, uh, the Medicis sold that very block of land to the Chinese for half a billion dollars. <laughs> So, so he's doing okay in, in yes, prison. Yes, yes, absolutely. Doing all right. No need to grow it. Yes, indeed. So uh, in a sense then, that reform to the property development uh, donations law uh, is one of the consequences of Gurk's murder, right? Correct. Yes. Right. 
I mean, I, I did. I should. I suppose we should make the point here that um, we are talking about the man's murder, and there are f- four kids and a widow still out there, right? Yes, and I think that's one of the saddest things, especially for the nine-year-old son. Mm. That trauma. The trauma, and the neighbours said at the time that they could just hear this this boy screaming, you know, "Mummy, mummy, daddy's been shot." There was a pop and there's blood. Mm. And the poor kid um, wasn't able to help police. I mean, I think Mm. that the strain of Mm. being the only witness but having seen or heard nothing Mm. just would have been… Do we know where they are, the McGurk family? They they, um, changed their names back to uh, Kimberley's maiden name. They sold the house And, you know, they've gotten on with their lives. But I think it's been really difficult. And, of course, you know, don't forget that um, almost a year after the murder, when uh, Michael McGurk's widow, Kimberly didn't settle the lawsuits in which her husband was embroiled with Ron Medich, he got someone to go round to her house to threaten her. And the person that went round there said, you know, it, it was dark, he was wearing a hoodie, yeah. don't be a criminal like your husband, pay your husband's debts. And she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, you do know, you pay those debts. And the only debt was to Ron Medich. And that's interesting because there were a couple of cops inside at the same time, is that right? That's right. <laughs> so, uh, and it was interesting how, um, as we mentioned um, uh, Crystal Weir before, mm. how it all unraveled um, was that Crystal Weir had taken an AVO out against Hassam Safetli, who'd become violent and threatening. This is after so, the murder. This is after yeah, the right. murder. Mm-hmm. So, and she tells police about the morning after the murder, about what had been said. She also had been with Hassam Safetli doing surveillance on the McGurk house. Along with everyone so, else's. Well, exactly. Yeah. So she was she totally aware yeah. of yeah. the whole plot. So she gave up um, Safetli, as did the man who was hired to go to threaten Kimberly McGurk. He was caught... Uh, doing something criminal. Was that Mr. Ad- F? Mr. F. Yes. And we can't name him because he's now a protected witness. Right. So he had initially been approached to do the murder, but had <laughs> fleeced <laughs> Safetli of $100,000, which he'd used as a deposit on a house. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, even though he's taken, you know, that the money, he's then approached to do the intimidation of... Now, Mrs. McGurk, so only half an hour before this is due to happen, the police ring Kimberly McGurk and and say to her, this is what we think is going to happen. And they didn't know whether it was Mr. F or Hassam Safetli who was coming round. So she was facing the prospect of the man who killed her husband Mm. coming to her house to threaten her. And they said, look, we will be here it's up to you if you don't feel like you can go through with it. But the police really needed this mm. to have something concrete to Did pin. they arrest him on the spot? Or do... no, no, they, they let didn't. Him go. Well, they, they, they arrested, they um, it was a month later right. that they. So what they did was um, 
So after they got Safetli for the intimidation mm-hmm. of Mrs. McGurk, he then agreed to wear a wire. So he right. then in turn trapped Lucky Gatilari. Right. And what the police were hoping for was that they could then get Lucky Gatilari to trap Medich. Right. But they became afraid that the um, the Lucky Gatilari crew was going to kill Safetli. So they had to arrest them all before they had enough to charge Ron Medich. So, you know, and, and the, the day of the day of the arrest, I don't know whether you remember this, but I'd got a tip off the day before mm, mm. and we had these top secret meetings in the office about planning um, because we didn't know who was going to be arrested, where they were going to be arrested. But because uh, McGurk had said, uh, Ron Menich is going to have me killed and Lucky Gatilari is going to do it. We had two suspects and the third suspect was Lucky Gatilari's driver and right-hand man, a former Bosnian soldier called Senad Kamenich. So Tom Riley went to Senad Kamenich's house. Van der Carson went to Ron Medich, to, sorry, to Lucky Gatilari's house at Chipping Norton. And of course, I gave myself Ron Medich's house. Should. Well, no, because it was the next suburb. It was easy. They had to drive miles oh, you away. You went for a walk with the dogs. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, and look, we didn't know, um, we didn't know what time the murders were going to happen. But because you always hear of pre-dawn raids, yes, there right. we were at, at 5 a.m. all in positions outside our various locations. So I had um, I had brought the two family dogs because I intended to pose as a dog walker. But on the tick of seven, suddenly everyone's maids arrive, as do all the construction workers. Because as is the way in Wolseley Road, every billionaire knocks down a perfectly fine establishment to erect an even finer establishment (laughs) to reflect, you know, their own visions of grandeur. So, but the other funny thing that happened on that morning was that um, as I'm out, you know, walking (laughs) up and down with the mutts, um, a family friend of, you know, my kid at my kid's school said, Kate, (laughs) what what brings you here at 6.30am? And I said, well, actually, I'm on a stakeout. And she said, oh, would you like to come in for a cup of tea? And I said, no, a stakeout does require a degree of vigilance. I can't come in for a cup of tea. She said, oh, okay. Well, maybe after. No, but anyway, so as the hours go and nothing happens, I've packed up and I'm heading, I'm about to drop the dogs back home and head into work when Bandit rings in a state of complete panic and excitement to say that Mick Sheehy, the head of Homicide, because Vanda had abandoned her post because she was hungry. <laughs> She'd gone to the local pastry shop and there was the head of Homicide buying a pie. Happy days. Like happy days. So we knew. <laughs> so, it was on. So it was on. Oh, so I race back. Everyone goes to their stations. And, of course, where Vanda is and Tom had followed Senator Kamenich to Lucky Gatilari's warehouse. So they were upstairs partaking of their morning cognac and cigar at 10 a.m. Exactly, as you do when the arrests happen. I, meanwhile, I'm back eagerly outside Ron's house. Nothing. Nothing. Nada. Zippo. So, and it wasn't, I mean, it was interesting how things unraveled against Ron because, um, 
Lucky was arrested, mm-hmm. and Lucky sadly suffers acutely from claustrophobia. <laughs> so, <laughs> bad, bad, bad moment. I know. So being in jail was doing <laughs> Lucky's head in. So Lucky got a message via his son to Ron Medich's son to say, you know, look, Lucky needs a million dollars for bail, and that's going to be the cost of his defence. And Ron Medich's son, Peter, said, look, you know, it's each man for himself now. And Lucky's son says, it's your father they want, not mine. So because Ron washed his hands of Lucky and Lucky had no money, so it's different when you have money. That was a strategic error. Yes, I think it was. I mean, I don't know what would have happened, but a million dollars seems like – you know, a small price now Mm. to pay. But as it was, Lucky began to sing like a bird (laughs) and Lucky knew who a lot. Yeah, how many many, um, pages of statement was it? It Oh, there was like 550. 500 pages. Enough for two corruption inquiries, (laughs) a murder trial. (laughs) Sang like a bird. What, um, talking about the journalism piece of this, I mean, this book, what's the secret to... Writing a book like this, I mean, a lot of it's in the detail, but I mean, this is a lot. This is a labour of love. This is a ten-year project, in a way, isn't it? Yes. Look, I think um, one of the things that I always love are those moments of absurdity, and I love the humour. And you know, these—I I know it sounds dreadful—but these people were so stupid that they provided. Endless amounts of humour. Like, you know, here is Hassam Safetli in the witness box and, um, you know, he's been cross-examined and they said, you know, you're lying, aren't you? No, I'm not. You swore on the Bible yesterday, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. So you swore on the Bible. What religion are you? Muslim. (laughs) And you think, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) It just keeps giving. I know. And, you know, the thing was... Um, you know, he was such a fantasist. Um, at the, his own, which one, this is, no, Hassam Safetli. Uh, so at his, um, I think he had, um, he was diagnosed with a narcissistic personality disorder, but he can't help himself. He tells the prison shrink that he was worth $50 million, <laughs> that it, like it was a, that he had a mechanical engineering degree. <laughs> so when he's in the witness box, they say, um, you haven't really got a mechanical engineering degree, have you? And he says, uh, um, well, I have got an automotive, you know, TAFE degree (laughs) and I have got a driver's licence and a forklift driver's (laughs) licence. And, like, that is it. And you just think you've just made up all these ridiculous things. What made McGurk such a good liar, do you think? Because he is a remarkable – he does get away with a lot. I mean, we haven't got to that sort of Bruno um, I think it's that air of plausibility. Mm. And I think, um, as I mentioned, I'm sure that McGurk was a sociopath. And I think that enables you to to lie, to connive, mm. to and to not care mm. one minute who you hurt or what you do. And I spoke to um, – Oh, Vander and I spoke to two of his closest friends in all this, and both of them, you know, after years of friendship, both got burnt by McGurk in, you know, when he needed money, even his closest friends got Mm. burned. Well. It is a great book. Um, I recommend it thoroughly. Uh, it should, anyone who's interested in investigative journalism and police corruption should read it. But anyone interested in kind of really 
well, in Sydney, but also it's a universal story. It really does need to be a movie. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, it has to be a movie oh. or a miniseries of some sort. Uh, well, yes, look, one could own, one could only hope. Well, one, one, one. Well, come back, we'll come back and do it then. Just before you go, because um, we have run out of time, but um, uh, can we just talk a little bit more about um, investigative journalism in the broad? Because it's been a tough year in some ways for uh, doing the trade. You know, we've had these police raids. Do you think it's getting harder to? be an investigative journalist or or has it always been this tough? No, I think it's harder. And I think it's harder because of, um, you know, data retention, the ability of investigative agencies to access our emails, etc., mm. with warrants that we aren't even allowed mm. to know that there is a warrant to mm. do this. Journalism information warrants. Yes, yes, exactly. So I just think it's it's a worrying time to be a journalist. Having said that, I'm just still shaking my head at the, the stupidity of the Australian Federal Police and whoever instructed them to raid the um, the premises of both a News Corp journalist and, you know, the ABC headquarters Ooh. because what it did was just drive into each other's arms, Ooh. you know, to sometimes hostile United media. Yeah. Yes, media outlets. So I just think that that's been um, – you know, so in some ways the raids were a good thing. Ooh. You know, just yeah, to bring yeah, that to public attention and just for people to understand what is at stake here. Yeah, yeah. And we've been talking about the raids and the flow on when there's two, mm. two political uh, parliamentary inquiries into them. I'm not sure what will come out of it. Um, yeah, the journalism information warrants are, are remarkable because, you, uh, as you just said, you don't even know whether you're subject to one. No, exactly. And I think that um, the most recent review of them found – that I, I can't remember how many were granted last mm. year, but there was rather a lot. And at least one case, it was determined that there was absolutely no grounds for that warrant to be to have been granted in the first place. Mm. But, mm. you know, we just don't know. Um, we're just not in a position to know what they're doing mm. and what grounds they're offering up. And often they're offering them up to uh, magistrates, you know, like in Queanbeyan Court and other courts. They don't really know. Yes, exactly. And there are, that's right. Oh, well, we'll watch the space and we'll come back and talk about journalism freedom some other time. Um, what's the next book? Oh, no, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Look, it's one of those things that it, it really nearly kills you. It's, um, it's fun doing it. But it's um, oh, it's, it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Mm. It is a lot of work. So I'm sort of relieved that it's over. Yes, and now you can, all you got to do is talk about it. That's right. <laughs> That's the fun bit, right? <laughs> Correct. Kay McClymon, it's always a pleasure to see you, of course, and thank you so much to coming in on the Fourth Estate, and all the best with the book. Look, thank you so much for having me, Peter. Most enjoyable. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, with that, we're going to uh, leave uh, Kate McClymont and she'll go off and talk to someone else about her wonderful book. But um, thank you all for listening to The Fourth Estate. Uh, this edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and can be heard across the country on the Community Radio Network and, of course, on your podcast app of your choice. Um, make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate so you can keep in touch with what we're doing. And we'll be back next week with more. But in the meantime, please stay in touch with us on Twitter, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockerell. And my name is Peter Frey. And thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.